All right, we are in week two of our new series, and then what happened? And the reason we're going into this, well, there's a lot of reasons, I'm going to get into them in a second, is because the story of Jesus doesn't end on Easter Sunday. Perhaps Journey said it best, right? Don't stop believing because it goes on and on and on. And so to kind of set the stage for going forward in the story of Jesus, last week, if you were here, and if you weren't, I want you to go back and listen to it, we went back. We followed Jesus' model of, of helping the disciples understand who he was after his resurrection. Because they, like we, they didn't really get it. In fact, you'll see in, in the coming weeks, it took them like 30 years to figure it out. So we, we looked at Jesus' model, right? Where post-resurrection, Jesus' story, because it goes on and on and on. Good luck getting that song out of your head all day today. If, you, if I can't get you to remember the sermon, I'll get a, a song jammed in your head, Right? As this story goes on and on and on, Jesus, post-resurrection, he, he meets up with a couple of disciples. On the same day he, 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 he's risen from the dead, there's a couple of disciples that were on a road taking a, a walk towards a city called Emmaus. And Jesus kind of sidles up beside them, and he asks them why they seemed so glum. And so they, they didn't recognize him at first, and, and they explained everything about who Jesus of Nazareth was and what he had taught, and yet what had happened to him, that, that he had been killed. And, and that, that morning, some of the women had gone to the grave to prepare his body for burial, and uh, when they got there, the stone had been rolled away and there was no Jesus. And, and so the men, they didn't really believe it, and they ran to the grave, but the men couldn't find Jesus. And, and so he, they just kind of shared that they were distraught. And they, they, I don't know, I guess they were probably assuming that somebody had taken the body or moved the body. I love um, what Jesus says to them, right? He looks at them and he's like, why are you so slow to believe? Why are you so slow to believe? How foolish you are, he says. And the scripture says that then they started, Jesus started them with Moses and the prophets, and he explained everything that the, that the scriptures had taught about the Messiah. And so that's what we did last week. We backed up in order to go forward. We saw, starting with the law and the prophets, who Jesus was. Now, because I think Jesus knew then what we have experienced now, if we don't know well and fully the story of Jesus, the whole story of Jesus, if we only know just parts of the story, it's dangerous for us. And we went through last week what some of those dangers are. You could check them out online. But a couple of them included things like it's dangerous for our kids. We send them off to college, right? And they, they just kind of have a, just a rudimentary understanding of what it is they believe. They're not rooted or grounded. And, and so when things start not working out, like sometimes people think like, well, believing in Jesus should make my life easy. And when, it, and when it's not easier or when they run into a professor that says this, none of this is true, it's an old wives' tale. If they're not really rooted in what it is they believe, I mean, it's just easy to walk away from, Right? And here's the second one. The second, uh, second one, one of many, the, the, the second of many is that when we don't know the full story of our faith, when we just have a casual understanding of Jesus, people will use that and they'll use you. They'll play upon your, your and my misunderstandings of our faith and Jesus, and they'll use Jesus and Jesus' followers as, as means to their own ends. I mean, politicians do this all the time. It's politics 101. But it doesn't end uh, uh, with, with politicians. Madison Avenue does it too. Sell it to the Christians, right? Wrap it in a Bible verse. 
We become like the Mikey of the old Life cereal commercials. Anybody remember Mikey? I don't know if you're old enough. Give it to Mikey, he'll eat anything. For those of us with faith, it's often, you know, pitch it to the Christians. That voting block, that consumer block, they'll buy or believe anything. And so with that as a backdrop, and, and my take that for most uh, of Americans' Christianity, we, we have like a hodgepodge of kind of half-truths. Most folks on the street, I think if you, if you ask them, are you a Christian, they'd say, yeah. And they'd say, okay, tell me about what you believe. Well, I think most folks, and, and again, not out of bad will, they'd say there's a God and, and he made us and that Jesus is his son who died for us. And if we obey the Ten Commandments and are good people, then we go to heaven. But, I mean, if you push them on it, most folks will tell you, and I mean, the statistics back this up, most folks sitting in churches will tell you, that all roads really lead to heaven. So as long as you believe something and you're a good person, you should be fine. And so to kind of untangle all of these kind of half things that we believe, last week we went back before going forward, back to Moses and the prophets. And our history lesson really, if you were here, just revolved around two promises of God in this very ancient story that you and I find our place in. The first was a promise called the Abrahamic Covenant, God comes to a man out of nowhere in the middle of nowhere named Abram. Changes his name to Abraham, right? And in the middle of this desperately broken world that's around him, 2,000 years or so before Jesus is born, God comes and he makes Abram for no reason an unconditional promise. He says, I am going to make you and your descendants into a nation, a great nation. You're going to have your own land, a new land. You're going to have your own country, and your name is going to be great. The nation that comes forth from you will be great, and that nation will be a blessing to the entire world. Abraham, I guess like you, would go, well, what do I need to do? There was no what do I need to do. God just promised them, and God kept that promise. Now, there was a second promise that happens a little later in our story. This one is given to Moses at Mount Sinai. After Moses had led Israel, this nation that had come out of this promise to Abraham, this, this, this nation finds itself in bondage in Egypt, and, and Moses leads the nation of Israel, started by Abraham, out of Egypt, back to this land promised to Abraham. So there's a second promise covenant given to Moses. But this one was different than the Abrahamic covenant. This one had a promise. Literally, I showed it to you last week, it was literally an if-then promise. It was conditional. It said, to this nation of Israel, okay, specifically to a specific audience, if the nation of Israel will obey the laws I'm giving you, yes, the Ten Commandments, but there were 600 plus more of them, if you obey them, I'll bless you. And if you don't, then I'll discipline you. But because of that Abrahamic covenant, which was unconditional, you'll always be my people. And it was those two promises that frame almost everything you read about in what we call the Old Testament, but what the Jews called the Law and the Prophets. And so with that understanding, as you fast forward to the life of Jesus, again, some 2,000 years after God made this promise to Abraham, about 1,500 years after God's promise to Moses, you see that these two covenants are still in place. Israel indeed does have a land. They are in their prom promised land, right? They are a nation, but yet, once again, they find themselves oppressed, this time under occupation by the Roman Empire who ruled the streets and claimed that Caesar is Lord. 
And it's into that environment, under those two promises, that Jesus is born. And there was a man named Luke, a highly educated Greek physician who wrote, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And so Luke begins to write the history of the story of Jesus. But he acknowledges, it's super interesting, that he's just one of the many people who are going to write about Jesus. Why are there many people writing about Jesus? Because his story is that big a deal. Luke's going, everybody's talking about it, everybody's writing about it. What's fascinating about Jesus is we actually have reliable firsthand accounts of, of this story. A lot of times when you go back in history, you have no reliable first-person accounts 2,000 years ago. We have multiple eyewitness accounts of the story of Jesus. Now, Luke wasn't one of them, though. Luke never saw Jesus. He just heard all about it. And he was an educated guy. Most people believe he was a physician. And so he sets out to record these stories, to write them down. With this in mind, he said, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, Luke, even by secular scholars, I, I would encourage you to check this out, is noted to be a first-rate historian. The details of his work, we went over some of them last week, they make his, his record almost impeccable. And so he's writing about Jesus to somebody named Theophilus. Nobody really knows who Theophilus was. But since Luke uses the term most excellent, it's a title that was often used to refer to somebody of honor or rank, such as a Roman official, perhaps. One of the most common theories is that Theophilus was probably a Roman officer or a Roman um, a political dignitary. Another thought is that Theophilus was wealthy and influential, and he lived in the city of Antioch. But then Luke gives a reason for why he decided to do this work. He says, I've written to the, this to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know. And what does he want Theophilus to know? Well, I would say it's the same thing Jesus wanted the disciples on the road to Emmaus, to know. The same thing he wants you and I to know. Luke does all this work for one reason. Theophilus, I've done this so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. This is a huge deal. This is the point of all of this work. I'm writing to you because I know you know the story, Theophilus, but I'm writing, I've done all this work to check into this because I want you to be certain of it. I don't want you just to know it. I want you to be certain of it. I, I don't want you to wonder. I don't want you to be half believing, half doubting, not kind of half sure. I want you to be certain. And why? Because as we're going to see in a minute, certainty on these things, it really, really matters. If you're kind of like, half uncertain about it, you're going to see, you're going to miss out on a lot. And so that's the beginning of the gospel of Luke. We have these four gospel stories, these accounts of Jesus's life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Luke, Luke, it turns out, Luke is a two-part work. I mean, most, most Christians don't know this. Luke, Luke is a two-part series. It has a continuation. Almost everybody's heard of the first book, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But few people know about the second one. Luke, is, it comes with a sequel. And like some sequels, it's actually just as good or even better than the original. Because if you don't know the sequel, you don't know the story. I'm going to repeat that because I know it's a bold claim. But I'm telling you, if you don't know the sequel, you don't know the story. 
And so Luke begins his second book this way. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And so he's writing again back to this guy, Theo. But if you're reading at home and you just kind of breathe by that line, it's the opening line in Acts, so it'd just be like, I'm just going to start this book, right? Um, this, this, this book is called Acts, or sometimes you'll see it referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. If you just read by, you'll miss a super important detail. He says in his first book, he wrote all Jesus began to do and teach. All that he began to do and teach. Notice he did not say, I wrote to you all that Jesus did and taught. There is a huge implication here. This is why we're doing this whole series. Jesus' work did not end with his resurrection. Jesus just began then. Jesus is still doing and teaching. This is wild. I want you to think about it. This The founder of every other major religion has already done all of the things they're ever going to do. They've already taught everything that they will ever teach. They're written in some holy book somewhere. But Luke says, yeah, I, I recorded them in my book, but that was just the beginning. There's even more. You see, Jesus is still teaching and doing. Jesus is still teaching and, and doing today in my life. And if you would but open your mind and your heart to him, he will be doing and teaching in your life too. Now, because we know that God doesn't change what he's teaching and doing, it's never going to be counter to what he's already done and taught. I had somebody came to me one time, and, and, and as you begin to know the scriptures, you'll be able to smell this stuff out too. And, and this specific time, somebody came to me and said, my, my, um, I've been told to leave my, my spouse to marry another person. And I said, no, you might have been told that, but it wasn't by who you think told you. Um, oh, no, 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 I'm convinced of it. This is what God wants for me. And I'm going, I'm convinced it's not. Because God wouldn't change his mind on those things, right? So he's still doing a teaching, but he's not changing. The, Luke goes on. Super important. There's so much stuff in these first couple chapters, or first couple words. After his suffering... He presented himself to them, to the disciples, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Luke makes sure we understand one thing. He didn't, he didn't say after his death. He says after his suffering. He points out that Jesus suffered. He didn't just die. And again, back to what Jesus was trying to show the disciples on that road to, to Emmaus. Back to the prophets and to, to maybe to Israel's greatest prophet, Isaiah, who wrote, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus did not just die on our behalf. Luke wants you to understand Jesus suffered on your behalf because God is equal parts love and just and the justice due all sin for all of time was placed on Jesus the justice due all sin for all time would not be paid born or displayed by a quick and tidy death it would involve suffering Luke says that Jesus had to give them many not one but many convincing proofs that he was alive why? 
Why was Jesus so intent on making sure they understood that he was alive? Why didn't he just say, well, you'll read it, you can read about it in the book I'll leave behind? Because, because if he wasn't intent on it, right? If he just like kind of left them there and said, well, read about it in the book, understand my teachings, and this is where a major misunderstanding of Christianity comes from, it's not just about what Jesus taught and an instruction manual for living that he left behind. Because if it was, then all we have to do is follow the instructions and we'll be just fine. But it was never about that, right? Jesus, in rising from the dead, he's, he, he's, he's inaugurating something. He's teaching them that this is not about you and you being able to do anything. It was then and it is now about Jesus. What he had done by suffering first and then by rising. He accomplishes our salvation. He goes first. He pays the price for our debt, for our debt, he pays a debt we can't repay, and then he goes ahead of us into new life. This is not about just be good. This is Jesus saying, there's nothing you can do. I've already done it for you. And let me show you, I'm alive. Now, it's not easy. Do you, does anybody know anybody that's died and come back to life? Anybody? I mean... It's, it's kind of hard to believe, right? And I think, you know, in the 21st century, we, we, um, we have this 21st century arrogance, right? Well, that, well, of course they believed it back then. They were just first century ignorant, uneducated, superstitious guys. But it's so interesting because Luke and the other gospel writers go out of their way to embarrass themselves. Jesus had told them this was going to happen. But Luke and the other gospel writers keep going, yeah, he had told us it was going to happen, but we didn't believe it, we didn't believe it, we didn't believe it, we didn't believe it. Earlier, Luke had written that once those two men on the road to Emmaus, who Jesus had met and taught that day, once they got back to Jerusalem, they went to the other disciples, and they said, it's true, we've seen him. Now, what do you think the other disciples thought when two guys showed up and said, it's true, we've seen him? Oh, well, I guess he's alive? No. They would have looked at, just like you look at your buddies and said, mm, I don't know what's going on with you, man, but, you know, I don't know if you've been drinking or if you hit your head. That's what happened. And so the scriptures, Luke, who looked into this, says, here's what happened. They were there telling them this, and, and suddenly Jesus shows up. He writes that they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? They think just like you and I do, right? I mean, he can't be alive. He can't be. We saw him dead. We saw him bleed out. We saw them carry him away. We saw him sealed in a tomb. And so this has got to be, I mean, this is really just no different than 21st century thinking. This has to be some kind of ghost or something. This is some kind of afterlife person. It's not really Jesus. So again, and I think a lot of us think that about Jesus, right? Post-resurrection, he was kind of like a ghost. And so Jesus goes, no, 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 no. He goes, look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. I love it. He goes, a ghost does not have flesh and bones. As you see, I have. You could touch Jesus. Like he was firm, like your hand didn't pass through when you touched him, right? I'm solid, guys. I'm here. I'm alive. 
In fact, he goes on. He goes, Luke writes, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and they still did not believe because of joy and amazement. And so Jesus is looking at him going, I don't know what it's going to take to convince you guys. I'm not a ghost. I'm telling you. I know I was dead, but I'm alive. And so Jesus goes, do you have anything here to eat? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. And I just love it because it's so real. They still don't believe it. So what does Jesus do? He's kind of looking around going, what am I going to do? I gotta, how am I going to prove it to these guys? You know what? Give me some fish. And he eats in front of them. He eats in their presence. Why? Ghosts don't eat. Right? And so Jesus is like, look, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm back. I'll show you. Let's eat. And so he went on. He told them, this is what is written. Back to the law and prophets again, right? The Messiah will, here it comes again, suffer. This is a key part to what Jesus is trying to teach them post-resurrection. You need to understand that the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, which is where they are. You, he said, are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. What things? Well, this is your story. This is what you're going to tell people. These things. What things? That you saw me dead, and now you've seen me alive. That's what you're going to tell people. That's where the story begins. The story does not begin with my teaching. My teaching is only validated by my resurrection. Th think this through. You, you, you all are smart, right? If Jesus isn't resurrected, you realize there's no Bible to believe in, right? Why is Luke recording all, Luke's in the Bible, right? At the time, Luke didn't know there would be a Bible. He's writing for a guy named Theophilus. Why is Luke writing any of this? Why were many people writing about it? Because Jesus told great stories? No. The only reason that we know any of this, the only reason the Bible exists, is because Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus isn't resurrected, what would have happened to the disciples? What would have happened to Peter, who told his story to Mark and wrote it down? What would have happened to Matthew and John? I don't know, but my guess is since pre-resurrection, they had kind of abandoned ship, uh, they, they had headed back and hit, hidden in a room, my guess is they probably just would have gone back to fishing. No resurrection. No one records or write down, writes down or passes down the Sermon on the Mount. All the Beatitudes, they're gone. Prodigal son story, oh, I love the prodigal son, yeah. Lost the time. Good Samaritan, never heard of him. All of it's gone. Unless Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And that's why Jesus spends so much time trying to convince them. Many were so shocked by this, they decided they were going to write it down. So let's get back to the continuation. Luke's second book, he goes, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. I think a lot of us, you know, when we grow up, and again, it's like, okay, there's God and there's Jesus and there's the Ten Commandments, and if you're good, then you go to heaven. If not, well, you probably still go to heaven as long as you don't murder anybody, right? And so that, none of that is true, but I think that that's what we think. And so when we think about Jesus rising from the dead, are you aware that Jesus didn't, like, rise from the dead and, like, rise right up to heaven? Jesus stayed around for, like, a month and a half. Like, this wasn't like a, hey, I'm back, but I really got to go. A month and a half, right? 
And, and what does he begin teaching them about? What, he begins teaching them about not, what he, not, not all of the, the laws that you would think he would teach them about. He begins teaching them about the kingdom of God, something that we can experience and live in now, even before we die. Now, because this is a true story, here's what you should be thinking, okay? The Bible always wants you to challenge these things. Okay, well, let's think this through. If Jesus was alive for a month and a half, there had to have been a decent amount of people that saw this and were amazed by it. Well, Luke says many began to write about it. How about Paul? Paul himself, who never met Jesus before his resurrection, he writes to the church in Corinth. I love this. Because the church in Corinth had some people that came in and said, you guys don't really believe in this resurrection thing, do you? What are you, a bunch of morons? There's no resurrection. And so Paul goes, look, what I received, because I wasn't there, I pass on to you as of first importance. In other words, this is the most important thing. This is the most important thing. Church, are you hearing me on this? What is it of first importance? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus' resurrection is of first importance. If you do not believe and truly root, if you're not truly rooted in this, if you're not so sure this happened, everything else is not going to make any sense. But Paul goes on. He says, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. And then he appeared to James, Jesus' brother, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. Paul, like Luke, is challenging people to look into this. He's going, look, I know you don't believe. I know that people are telling you you're crazy, but there are hundreds and hundreds of people that saw Jesus alive, walking around on earth and teaching about the kingdom of God for a month and a half. You should go find them. I'll point them out for you. He wouldn't have written this if it wasn't true because it would have been so easy just for somebody to pick up and go, okay, show me them. He goes on. Luke goes on. He goes, on one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. He goes, because Jesus is still teaching. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to get into that in the coming weeks, but Jesus basically reminds them of what he's been telling them before, that it would be better for you all to, to if I leave. Because if I leave, my Father is going to send you the Holy Spirit, and, and, and you're going to receive power to do even greater things than I've done. And so he says, I want you to stay in the city and wait for that moment to come. And so then with all of that as the backdrop, okay, all of that as the backdrop, here comes my favorite line in the story, Acts uh, 1-6. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They just circle right back to their story, right? Their covenants, it's a nation, it's a land, it's a people, it's a kingdom. And Jesus had been teaching them, though, about a new kingdom that they were going to be witnesses of. For 40 days, he had been telling them about this new kingdom. For 40 days. No, don't worry about that kingdom. I, I have, as Christ followers, I have a new kingdom that should be of first priority to you. And what do they want to do? They want to go back to the old kingdom where they were the priority. I mean, think about it, right? 
You can almost hear them saying that Jesus, right? Well, you know, Jesus, we still have Rome here, and Caesar and the Roman taxes, and, and Jesus, we're still on the run. I mean, you know, we can't just walk around Jerusalem like we used to be. I mean, it might seem like you rose from the dead. I'm convinced that you have, but I heard Thomas back here the other day saying he still had some issues. But Jesus, I, I, I think you've risen from the dead, and, and I'm convinced. So it's, it's, it's like now the time, because I believe, and some of the other guys don't, but I believe that you, you're risen from the dead, so is now the time we take over and take charge? I mean, Jesus, is this your, your doing here, this thing you're going to do? It, isn't it about us? Like Israel first, right, kind of thing? Israel first. I mean, the boys and I, Jesus, we took the liberty of making some hats for, for the occasion. <laughs> right? Every, everything old is new again. I'm telling you. We, we made some hats for the occasion because, right, we're th our thinking is now's the time that we go back to the old days when we were in charge. And I mean, of course, then Jesus, if you're going to be around and, and you're in charge, then it could mean that I could have a position of authority if I hang around by you and then I could sit at your right hand and I could be in charge. I mean, Thomas doubts, right? I already told you that. So I'm not sure what you want to do with him, but me, I believe. What do you say? Let's... Make Israel great again. I, I just love Jesus' answer. He, he gives it to, I give this answer to everybody who asks me, are we living in the last days? I can't tell you how many times I get asked this question. John, do you think we're living in the last days? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Wait a minute. I thought we were going to make Israel great. Yeah, this is how we're going to do it. Israel exists to be a blessing to all of these other nations. And so here's what's going to happen. Now you're going to be my witnesses, witnesses of what? With all that, I suffered and I was killed and I, I rose again. And you're going to do that here in Jerusalem and then, and then nearby in Judea and then a little further away in Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, look, it's not about, this is not about what you think it's about. It's not about that kingdom. It's not about an earthly kingdom. It's not about Israel first or you first. Honestly, it's about others and their place in a new and different kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so you're not going to be staying here. You're going to be heading out there to be my witnesses that you saw me dead and you saw me buried and you saw me alive, right? Because once people believe that, something's going to happen to them. And you're going to teach them that I suffered to pay the price for everybody so that they could return to God. And then here's what Luke says happened. After he said this, <laughs> this is kind of funny. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hit him from their sight. Guys, this is in Christianity a very big deal. We rarely talk about it, but it's called the ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not walk off into the wilderness, right? And, and, and this, is not, this is why we don't have like, you know how we have Elvis sightings? We don't have Jesus sightings. I saw him. He put on a little weight, but, you know, he was still crushing it. Jesus does not just kind of disappear and, and, and walk off into the dark. Jesus doesn't go into the temple and set up a throne for himself. 
Jesus ascends. He goes to be with the Father, to sit at his right hand. And why? Because Jesus is still working. Jesus is right now, today, doing what he began to do then. The ascension matters. Jesus' work is not done. It's not done with with the world. It's not done with you. That's why ascension matters. There's this great story in John when Mary Magdalene goes to the grave and she realizes that it's Jesus that she's talking to. She thinks he's a gardener originally, and suddenly she goes, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. And if you know the story... She does what any of us might do. She jumps on Jesus and holds him tight. Almost like this, I lost you once and I'm never going to let you go with a, 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 again thing. And Jesus goes, Mary, you can't hold on to me. You've got to, let me go. You've got to let me go. I haven't ascended to my father yet. And what he's saying to her, and I think what he would say to us is, what the ascension really means, Mary, is look, is if you hold on to me here, then I can only be with you when you're with me. Things can separate us. Days are coming that there will be separation. And if I don't ascend, you'll never be with me. But if I ascend, then I'll be with you and everyone everywhere, every time, for all of time. See, Jesus doesn't ascend to get away from us, but to continue on with all of us. The ascension means he's not here. It means he's everywhere now. When Jesus is on earth, his work was done through one human body. But now his work is done through all of the believers, the body of believers. He's done through all of their bodies, through us. This is why we are to be witnesses. He works his power out through you. Now, that's theological. Practically, what does that mean? Well, I mean, I think it means if you just kind of get up and go to work every day and kind of grind it out, you know, put in 40 hours or so uh, a week and 40 years or so at the job, put a little money away for retirement and maybe travel a little, enjoy the grandkids and wait for a bad prognosis sometime in your old age, it means you don't own the story. You don't, you don't really own the story. You don't understand the ascension. See, if you live like there's just some shoe getting ready to drop around the corner, and that life is just random, and so you have to live with this fear or dread or anxiety about what tomorrow is going to bring, you don't really understand the, the truth of the ascension. I mean, what the ascension means, right, is that as believers, you should wake up, I should wake up, and I got to get better at this, all right? We should wake up every day Knowing the truth that Jesus suffered to pay the price for our sins, that we are forgiven and restored by God, and that Jesus is sitting on his throne right now, and that today, Jesus is doing exactly today what he began to do that first day. What he did in the lives of his followers then is what he's still doing in the lives of his followers now, today. Same God, same power, same commission. You are his witnesses If you believe this, you're his witnesses. Go and make disciples. See, it means that we don't live fearfully or dreadfully, but expectantly. Like Christians should be the most expectant people on earth. Sometimes it's like we've cornered the market on criticism, right, or cynicism. But if you believe in the ascension, we should be walking around understanding that, well, Jesus already paid the price for me. He suffered on my behalf. He's in control, and he's working all things out for my good. 
Tim Keller has a great quote of this. He says, Christians, if the ascension's true, then you should give up on your small ambitions. You should repent from your low expectations, and you should stop looking at the problems in your life like they can't be overcome. How dare you? Stop looking at the problems in this country or in our world like they can't be overcome. How dare we? Now, how, how do you receive this kind of power into your life to live this way? Well, he argues that, that we live, we let, must as believers live at the intersection of truth and power. The reason that Jesus spent so much time convincing people, and I hope you'll see this, he just spends a lot of time, a month and a half, convincing people, and then Paul goes on to convince people that he was alive. And he says that we have to be witnesses of that first. It's of primary importance that he suffered on our behalf to pay the price for our sins, that he was killed and buried, and he rose again from the dead. Jesus would say that is the truth, that not only must we be witnesses, but we have to own it, because when we really, 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 really believe that, with that truth comes the power. When you really believe that, you will receive the power that comes from believing that truth. Paul told the church in Rome, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everybody who believes. When you own the truth of Jesus' suffering and his death and his resurrection, it doesn't bring power, it doesn't result in power or lead to power, it does not have power, it is the power. That's the power. If you don't have this kind of power in your life, then it's likely you don't really, really own the truth. And what truth? That Jesus is who he said he is, that he suffered for our behalf, and that he died, was buried, he rose again from the dead, and he's alive right now, working things out for your good. Sits at the right hand of God. See, when you have the truth deeply settled in, in your heart, right, it brings revolution in, in your identity. I mean, the, the disciples, let's go back to the disciples. Jesus is trying to explain this. Is, I'm going I'm to tell you the truth. Here's the truth. You need to own it, okay? Because when you own it, you're going to, you're going to have this power. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. When you own the truth, you're going to get this power, right? The power is going to come out of owning this truth. And the disciples are going, okay, well, wait a minute. Like, is now the time we're going to restore Israel? And he's going, no, 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 no. You're, you're not getting it. Things have changed now. It's not about that anymore for you. It's not about the old. It's about something new. You have a new identity. You are now not a Hebrew first. You are a Christian first. This is your new and true identity. You are a Christian first and a Hebrew second. To us, you are a Christian first and an American second. You are a Christian first and a Republican second. You are a Christian first and a Democrat second. You are a white person first, or a Christian first and a white person second. Gosh, we better, that'll get edited down and <laughs> pull that one down. Let me just make sure I say it again correctly. You are a Christian first and a white person second. You are a Christian first and a black person second. You are a Christian first and you put in whatever else you want to put there. Do you see? We're fighting all, of, all over those secondary identities. People are playing you for those secondary identities. You are a Christian first. 
that, be- that be- believes in deep places that Jesus suffered and paid the price for your sins and that he was killed on your behalf, but that he rose from the dead and he is ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he is running the universe on your behalf. That's nuts. That changes everything. There's so much power in that. There's such freedom from fear and worry and anxiety and pressure. When you get it, this is still changing lives. We had Tim and Renska up here last week. That wonderful young couple has lost two babies in the last three years. They're living overseas. They left, they left the comfort of men in New Jersey. And why? Just because they know about Jesus? No, because they're living by the power that comes with deeply knowing him. Dan and Miriam Hutter are getting ready to go back overseas to a really threatening environment. What's going to give them the power to not turn away and just get scared and go, you know, I could die over here? It's not just that they believe, it's that they've received power because they deeply believe to live beyond fear. The truth is we're we're beginning to see it changed the world once. This is what changes the world. Here's what I said to you last week. Days after Jesus' resurrection, here's what we know. Some of the disciples believed, some doubted. You might have been able to count the number of believers on one hand, but, and I need you to think about this, only 300 years later, with no books, no Bibles, no radio, no printing press, TV, or Internet, in a world where most people were illiterate, they could not read or write, 300 years later, there were 30 million Christians, and Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire, the same empire which had crucified Jesus. How is that even possible? Could it happen again? And what was so compelling about the message of Jesus that it literally changed the world. And if you really understood the story of Jesus, the truth and the power, could it change it again? Could it change yours? The answer is yes, because power comes with the truth. I heard this story this week. It was such a good story. I want to share it with you. There was a major revival, and I'm going to close with this story. It broke out in Northern Ireland in 1859, not that long ago, relatively. There were apparently a a whole slew of prostitutes in the city, and most of the prostitutes in Northern Ireland, Ireland got converted during this revival. Now, that makes for a pretty good story, as you would imagine. And so a newspaper reporter sat down with one of them and said, what's going on? Why have all of you girls suddenly given, given up on prostitution? And why are you coming to church? One of the girls answered. She said, well, two reasons. The first is that when the revival started to take hold, our business went in the can. We had so few customers. And then she said, secondly, for the first time in our lives, people are treating us with kindness and respect. Keller, who told the story, summed up what was happening this way. He said that there's a a lot of people out there today who say that what this country really needs is to go back, that in order to, to make it great again, what we need to do is return to traditional values. Look, the irreligious people were the ones giving those girls business, so they were exploiting them. But, he adds, the religious people were treating them with contempt and spitting on them, and they were exploiting them too. You had the irreligious and the religious both exploiting the prostitutes in Northern Ireland. And then he says, look, you're smart. Well, that's what I would say. Look, you're smart. Do you think if you had just made the religious people more religious, if you had just made more religious people in Northern Ireland, if you had made the nation more conservative, that that would have converted these women that were held in bondage? 
No. Truth without power means just more spinning. Boy, do we see that all around us right now, don't we? He concluded, my dear friends, what changed those women's lives was not that people got more religious. It's that they got the gospel. The truth that Jesus suffered for their sins so that they didn't have to. That they were sinners themselves. But they wouldn't have to pay the price for their sins. That he was alive and that he was ascended and with them. See, the irreligious didn't have God's law. That's why they went to the prostitutes. But the religious didn't have God's love, and that's why they felt superior to them. They didn't understand they were sinners saved by grace. They didn't know the whole story, that Jesus had suffered for them. But when they became sinners saved by grace, they began to see the law as God's love fulfilled. That changes the world. It changes communities and it still changes you and me. Let's stand and close the song.